What's up, everybody? It feels so late. It feels so late. I used to be a winter person. I don't think I'm a winter person anymore. I feel dead right now because it's like, it's so cold and it feels so late. And I don't know, man. Maybe it's just me. I feel like I'm not the only one here that likes, that doesn't like winter. But anyway, uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be starting uh, our Advent series this evening. It's one of my favorite, maybe my favorite series that we do every single year. Uh, It's kind of a repetitive series, obviously, like the same goes with like Easter. Um, But we kind of know the moral of the story when it comes to Christmas. Like just from the get-go, even non-Christians most of the time are going to know the moral of the story of Christmas or what non-Christians are going to know what Christians think about Christmas, right? They're going to know why we celebrate Christmas. With that being said, though, I love getting to walk through it. This year is going to be a little bit different. Normally, we have three uh, services because we cancel or we don't have uh, midweek the week before or the week of Christmas, but we're going to do that this year. Um, so the 23rd, we're actually going to be here if, if you want to be here, obviously. Um, so we're actually going to do, we're going to do four uh, services, and the last one, the, it'll, it won't be Christmas Eve, it'll be the 23rd, but we'll do something a little bit different, so we'll have like snacks and stuff, and we'll do some Christmassy stuff that night, um, but we're going to go through four, <clears throat> four different services uh, this season, and I'm super excited to, to do that, talking specifically through the Gospel of Luke. Now, if you have been in this group, I'm pretty sure we went through Luke last year for Advent, and I'm pretty sure we went through the year before that, too. The Luke account of, uh, of, of the birth of Christ is my favorite one. Um, who knows who, first of all, who knows why Luke is a relevant person right now in our group? What have we been studying through for the last several weeks? Nope, and on Wednesday. Acts. Who wrote Acts? Luke, right? Acts is the follow-up uh, to, to Luke, to the Gospel of Luke. And one of the things that separates Luke from the other Gospel writers is that he is a super educated dude. He's a physician. He's a, an incredible writer. And for that reason, I talk about this every single year when we go through the birth narrative, the reason that Luke's account of Jesus' birth is so much longer than anybody else's. It goes almost, excuse me, it goes almost two full chapters in Luke where he's talking about Luke, or where he's talking about Jesus before he was born, the, the birth of John the Baptist, all these prophecies, and then Jesus being presented at the temple. The reason that he does that as a physician is because he wants everybody to know that what happened in Luke, the, what happened with Jesus being born to Mary and all this crazy stuff was not something that could be explained just by normal human logic. And of all people that have credibility to say, hey, a miracle happened, it's the doctor, right? It's the guy, I think, it's, it's the person who would ordinarily step in and be like, wait a second, there's no way that this happened. I'm a man of science, of course this miraculous thing didn't happen. And he steps in and writes this awesome account of the birth narrative and tells us in full detail, this actually happened. All this crazy stuff in Luke actually happened. Now for those of you who don't uh, know what Advent means, it means coming. It means pre- it's a preparatory uh, thing where we celebrate Advent from December 1st until December 25th as we celebrate the waiting period between whenever Christ was in this, in our text this morning, whenever he is prophesied and the prophecies all in the Old Testament leading up to when he actually was born. So right now, the second Advent is what we're waiting for, which is whenever Christ comes back. But we celebrate Advent to celebrate that preparation, that preparatory season uh, as we celebrate the first coming of Jesus. During this month, as we study through Luke, 
uh, we're going to be seeing uh, a ton of people that we don't see in the other gospel accounts of the birth narrative. So if you know in Matthew, there's a really long genealogy. Uh, that's like what it's most known for. But in most of the other gospels, it's kind of just like, okay, well, Jesus is born. There's some wise men. That's it. But in this, what I love about Luke is that we're going to see God not just bring Christ into the world uh, through, through this account, but we're also going to see him use people like Zechariah and Elizabeth tonight, or Mary over the next two weeks, or even Joseph, or even uh, Simeon and Anna at the very end of this. We're going to see not just this big picture of Jesus coming, but God using little people to accomplish his means. God using little people to do incredible things. I like it because it's almost like a subplot. If you guys know what a subplot is, if you watch any sort of movie, um, especially like franchises, you know that there's all sorts of subplots in those movies, right? There's all, there's not, there's the main plot, the main thing that the people, or the main characters are going for, but all across the way, there's, there's these little plots, these little side things that show up. We kind of see that here. It isn't just, okay, Jesus was born. Well, we see also these other characters, Zachariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna, all these people. But I also see this, uh, this uh, gospel or this, this narrative of Jesus' birth as a similar to a character arc. Do you guys know what a character arc is in, like a, in a movie franchise? So a character arc is essentially where a character starts and then where they end. Okay? My favorite one, my favorite character arc of all time in any movie is Tony Stark in the Marvel movies. If you've watched the Marvel movies, you don't notice this. The, what I love about these, these, these character arcs is you don't notice this stuff when you're actually watching it, like, just in real time. Whenever I saw Iron Man, I was like, this is cool. This is an Iron Man movie. I didn't really have in mind there was a whole universe that was going to follow it. But if you see Iron Man in the very first movie, like Tony Stark in the very first movie, he is, he is a completely selfish person. The only reason that he becomes a superhero is to save himself, to, which, I mean, that's fine. Like, if you need to become a superhero to save yourself, that's totally okay. Um, but he, the only reason that he even saves people in that first movie is to bring him glory, accolade, fame, right? If he, what, if, what happens at the end of Iron Man 1? What, is, what does Tony Stark do? Anybody remember? He announces he's Iron Man. Why would he announce that? No other superhero ever gives away their identity. Why would he announce that? Tony, Tony Stark wants people to know that he's Iron Man. Right? He wants people to, to know that, one of that attention. But he obviously, if you guys have watched the Marvel Universe, he evolves. He starts as this completely selfish person. Then he, he uh, flies this nuclear missile into, this, into space, to, and he almost died, obviously. He, he gets married. He has, if you guys watched the very last one, he's married. He's a kid. It's like a totally different person. And obviously in Endgame, he, he uh, shows that he is the ultimate team player. He has everything to lose. I'm not going to spoil anything in case anybody in here has not seen that movie. But we ultimately know that he, in that last movie, he is like a totally different person. He isn't this selfish guy that's only looking out for himself. He has everybody else in mind except for himself. Guy had absolutely nothing to lose in the first movies, and he, had, he, he, he sacrificed absolutely nothing. He turns into this guy that has everything to lose. They put everything on the line. That's a character arc. That's a change of a person's character. Now, whenever we see a God in the New Testament, what a lot of people will point to and accuse him of is that the God of the Old Testament is this mead, grumpy old man, and the God of the New Testament is a super graceful guy, and it's like this character arc. That's not what's happening. Yeah, that's not what I'm going to argue. It's really hard to talk this character arc thing with God. He's always been the same. But at the same time, 
in Luke, we get to see that aside from just this main story, aside from just Jesus being born in this, in this birth narrative, we get to see God's character at work in little ways, the way that he interacts with the people in these stories. Big picture, what's Advent about? This is Jesus, right? But what specific event in Jesus' life? When he was born. Super, super simple. We all know that, okay? We all understand that. But there's obviously, there's more happening in these stories. God is going to use these stories over the next four weeks to, um, to show his, his goodness, to display his goodness in more ways than just, okay, Christ is coming. It's going to show that he has this big picture in mind of Jesus redeeming the world. But at the same time, while that is true, he's going to be uh, looking out for the best interests of these six people. That's a really small number. Like, there's way more than six people in this room. There's way more than six people who've lived on this planet in the history of time. It's a really small number. This seismic event's about to happen in world history whenever Jesus is born. He's looking out for six people. So in the middle of that larger story, God is using these real people to accomplish these things, and he's doing so by bringing personal hope, personal joy, and personal fulfillment to these people. Zachariah and Elizabeth, they're our first case studies. Maybe my favorite of the whole series. I love this story so much. That's why I preach through it almost every single year. Christ is the ultimate hope in this season. God is going to do something tonight that only God could do. And he's going to do it specifically for these two people. In the midst of this crazy event that he's sending Jesus, he's going to get this. He's going to, he's going to show these two people he has not forgotten about them either. So Luke chapter 1, we're going to read verses 5 through 25. This is Luke writing. He says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. I think I got that one. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So real quick, anyone know what it means when it says he was chosen by lot? Anybody have a guess? Yeah, they cast lots. So it was almost like throwing die, right? It was, it was, or like drawing straws. That's how, it was the custom, that was how they were chosen to go into that, into that room that day. So keep that in mind. Verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fell, and fear fell upon him. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit of, and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am old. I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Who does that sound like? Abraham. Right. Sounds like Abraham. Verse 19. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. 
I stand in the presence of God, and I, I was sent to speak to you, to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the, day, until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and, remaining, and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. Verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to be gathered again to study Scripture, to, to worship you. Pray that during this time that we would be undistracted by outside things, that we would be rejuvenated and rejoiced at the coming of your Son. Pray that we would be reminded of your goodness through these, these four stories. We'd be reminded that your grace and your hope extend far beyond just the big picture, that they extend to us as individuals. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so looking at this story, kind of breaking this down, the first thing that we see in verses 5 through 7, what's in, the way that these uh, two characters are introduced to us, is through Elizabeth being unable to have children. And we talked a lot about uh, suffering and trials this past Sunday at Life Group. Um, we're going to talk more about it uh, this Sunday because that's kind of a, a theme of James. Talked about being patient in those seasons. And the illustration that James used was a farmer waiting for the harvest. That farmer has to put that seed into the ground and then water it and then wait for it to come up, right? We said that you can't, he can't just take it up, dig it up, and like right when he planted it and hope that something was going to appear. It doesn't work like that. We're powerless in that sense. We have to wait for it. However, there are some seeds that are planted that don't come up. This is one of those situations. Zachariah and Elizabeth, they had faced, I'm sure, many trials over their life, but this was one of those trials that was not going to go away, that was not going to be redeemed, right? They were old people, <laughs> They were advanced in age, just like Abraham and Sarah. They were unable to have children. Now, this is a common theme throughout the scriptures. This is something, too, that we should take away early on. Whenever the angel goes at Zechariah and says, well, you have not believed, when he talks about that, the reason that he comes at him so hard for that is because as a priest, as someone who would have studied the Old Testament, he should have known that God over and over and over uses this exact same experience, this exact same trial, and supernaturally works. He did it through Abraham. He was going to do it, oh, I forgot, through Leah. She, he does it over and over and over again through different characters, through uh, Samuel's mom, I forget her name, uh, Hannah. Over and over we see the same thing. So God, the angel was like, you, you know this stuff. Like, you know that whenever I say you're going to have a kid, like, I'm serious, that it can actually happen. This is a common theme throughout Scripture. And I'm not sure why, but the, the Lord seems to pick and highlight people who are walking through this, this problem, who are unable to have children without supernatural intervention. I think that one of the reasons why this is the case is because it's one of the most painful and hopeless situations that a person could find themselves in. It's one of the most debilitating problems. It's a, it's a rare trial in our culture or in our, in our world that is completely universal. Like, there's never been a culture that was not affected by this. There was never a culture that was like, oh, we're fine with it. That's not the case. But even, even more so in this circumstance, for a Hebrew woman in this culture to not be able to have kids was a disgraceful thing. For a, for a Hebrew man to not have kids, it was a disgraceful thing. So this, was a, this was a deep thing. 
This was a weight that they were carrying every single day. They were going to feel this stigma. In 1 Samuel 1, uh, it, said, it talks about Hannah, that woman I talked about earlier. It says that she wept bitterly over her inability to have children. She wouldn't eat because she couldn't have children. And she was provoked by other women because of it, which seems super mean. It's, uh, in, in Genesis 16, it says that Hagar looked down on Sarah whenever Hagar was able to get pregnant. And then in Genesis 29, Leah, who eventually has a kid, she says that this was an affliction upon her. So this is a very real struggle, an incredibly difficult trial for anybody in this culture to go through. Zechariah, he was a priest, and it says that both, his, or both him and his wife were, were godly, faithful people. So we can assume the weight of this inability to have children on them, knowing that they're probably saying, we've been faithful, why have you done this to us? Why have you given us this lot in life? Now for young people like us, there is much life to be lived, Right? a lot of life to be lived. There's a lot of stuff that can go wrong now that can be fixed in the future. This is not one of those situations. This is a hopeless situation, like in the truest sense of the word. There was not like a, oh, keep your chin up, don't say that. No, no like literally hopeless. There was, they were past the point of them being able to have kids. It was over. It was done. They were not even considering it, thinking about it. They were resigned to the fact that it wasn't going to happen. I'm not sure if anybody or any of us have been in a truly hopeless situation before. I don't know. I hope not. But I'm not sure if any of us have ever been there before. That the seed had been planted, but it stayed in the, law, in the, in the ground after much, much waiting and realized it wasn't coming up. There was nothing that was going to come from that. So why would God allow this sort of hopelessness to fall on his own people? Christians, we endure trials because there's hope that the trial at some point will end. Like even that, I'm not just talking about like eternity. I mean that like as Christians, we hope we, we can go through trials knowing that hopefully eventually God's going to work in this situation. Like at some point it will end. And 98, and I'm going to say 90% of the time that's true. At some point the affliction will end. There will be an end to that specific trial. But hopelessness, actual like true hopelessness is a debilitating thing. That's why the Old Testament talks about it over and over with these women, saying they were, uh, that, that whenever it says that Hannah would not eat, think about how hopeless that situation is. She wouldn't eat. She wanted to be by herself. She didn't want any, anybody around her. So I can't imagine the sort of hopelessness and the pain that they were walking through. But Zachariah and Elizabeth, something that we should note here, they continually, faithfully followed the Lord. They did not stop. They did not wane from that. Their hopelessness is where the Lord shows up, both literally in this case, but also in a spiritual case with Christ. We were without eternal hope. We were were spiritually dead without Jesus. God's people, they were lingering in exile for years. At this point, at this point in history, God hadn't spoken to his people in over 400 years. That's a long time. It's a really long time. Now, we have all the scriptures, so we know that that the the, story has kind of been finalized. Right, Christ, we're still waiting for him to come back, but there is no more story to be written. We know how it's going to finish. They did it. They were in exile. The scripture said that eventually they were going to come out of exile. In Isaiah, it talks about how someone's going to be pierced for our transgressions, right? They know that that is coming, but for 400 years they sat there and did not see it. They didn't know where he was. That's when the Lord showed up. After 400 years, whenever there was silence, whenever it was sure to be a dead deal, Christ shows up. God sent Christ when there was no hope for us. 
God sent, or God gave Zechariah and Elizabeth hope at the exact right time. That's what we also have to remember here. He gave them this hope at the exact right time. That's what Gabriel says, that in his time, it will happen. Look at verse 8. It says that he talks about while he was serving, actually not, not verse 8. Look at verse uh, 11. It says, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. It says that Zechariah was, uh, was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Here in these verses, we see something, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this phrase often. It's not like a great phrase, but it's just something I, that, that's kept coming to mind. What we're going to see in these verses is God only hope. So the only person able to do what, what's about to happen in these verses, in the next, not just these, this text, but the next two chapters, the only person that has the ability to do this is God. The only person that can offer the hope that he's going to offer is God. We can hope in a ton of different avenues, right? We can, have, we can put our hope in a lot of different things. And some of them are like logical things that aren't wrong. So for instance, if I wanted to go and sit in a chair... I'm going to sit in that chair without fear that that chair is going to collapse on itself. Like, I have hope and faith that it's going to sit there and I'll be fine. So not, uh, not having, or having hope in other things is not always bad. But there are certain things that only God can do. There are certain situations when our prayer has to be, God, do what only you can do. That's, that's where Zachariah and Elizabeth are at right now. Notice, that whenever, uh, Zach, notice what Zachariah was doing when this angel showed up. He was in the temple. He was in the temple doing his, uh, doing his priestly duties, doing what he was supposed to be doing, serving the Lord. I was listening to a sermon this weekend. The pastor asked this question. He said, what goal or desire, if unreached, would make you seriously consider or desire turning away from God? Now think about this. Zechariah, he's this old man. He's been this faithful man, and yet God kept him from the biggest thing. There are very few things in life that are bigger than, than having kids. Very few things that people value more. He kept him from this. Not only did God keep him from this, but he never answered. Like he ne- to the point where like Zachariah's like, I'm going to die, and this is never going to get answered, right? Of all things, this, is this not something that would make Zachariah, maybe you say, I'm done with this. I'm done with this guy. I don't have any interest in him. I always forget that I have coffee back here. I'm sitting here throat's kind of like dry. I'm like, man, I really wish I had something to drink. It's like, oh, I have coffee. Anyway, this is something that would have made Zachariah consider leaving, or would have made most, I mean, I would say most people think maybe there's something better to be had somewhere else, with someone else. It's exactly what Satan believed would happen to Job, right? Whenever, whenever Satan sent, uh, or whenever God allowed Satan to take everything from Job, he said, he, if he has everything, of course he worships you. If you take everything away from him, he'll leave, he'll bail. That was his argument. God was like, go for it, try it. What did Job do? He stayed, stayed faithful. That wasn't pretty. Talked about that a little bit on Sunday night. Job wasn't all, it wasn't all flowers and, and, and spirit-sprinkled joy. That wasn't what Job's life was like. Job spent most of the time asking God, why are you doing this? Please stop doing this to me. Questioning God multiple times in that book, but he stayed faithful. Zechariah. Zechariah stayed faithful. Now keep in mind, he wasn't doing this because he was patient, so he wasn't serving in the ministry because he felt like, well, if I just keep serving faithfully, God's finally going to give this to me. 
God's going to finally give me a child. That's not what he was doing this for. Listen, whenever, at this point in his life, it was, done, it was a done deal. <laughs> it's like there, I mean, it had probably been years since they'd even considered this, thought about this. So he wasn't showing up to the temple hoping to cash in on faithfulness that God would maybe do a miracle for him. That's what, that wasn't why he was there. But he stayed faithful anyway. There was no ulterior motive. He stayed faithful because he served God alone and waited on God alone. And ironically enough, it was in that faithfulness that brought him into this random circumstance where he was brought, put into this room by casting lots. It wasn't like it was his, he showed up that day uh, and was like he knew that he was going into the, into the room that day. It was, it was lots. It was God's sovereignty. In that moment, God's sovereignty put him in the right place. Imagine if he would have stayed home that day. Think about that. What if he had stayed home even just one day? You can be faithful to something and like not show up. Like there, there will be a day in the future, I'm sure, that I won't preach because I'll be sick or something. That doesn't mean that I'm like a not faithful to this job. He could have missed one day and he would have missed this epic thing happening to him. If he had left, he would have missed out on this God-only hope, this hope that only he could complete. That's the kind of hope that keeps us coming back for more, even whenever there's no earthly hope. That's the thing that the world cannot offer us. That's what makes us different from everybody else. There's no explanation for pain, for suffering in the world. There's no explanation for it. It's random. There's no purpose to it. We have purpose. He knew that he could hope in God even when God told him no. God responds to him by giving him this hope in a literal sense. This angel tells him he's going to have a son, right? This isn't just God giving him a good pep talk or the angel giving him a good pep talk. He shows up, he's like, hey, listen, you're going to have a son named John. And why is that God only hope? Like, why, why is that something that only God could do? Because they were old. They were old. It's another thing that Luke makes sure to mention here. Why do you think Luke is writing this? Remember, he writes about, or he gives this extensive detail about Mary, about the virgin birth. He gives extensive detail about this story, this old couple who were barren, were unable to have children, because he is this man of science saying, there is no explanation for this other than God's intervention. That's the only explanation for it. What was, anyone remember Sarah's response whenever Abram told her that God had told him that they were going to have a kid? She laughed at him. She laughed at him. Because why? Because scientifically, there is no reason for hope in that situation. This isn't Again, this isn't like something that a motivational quote on Instagram gets you ready for. This isn't something, like, this is something that once science says your day's done, you're done. <laughs> like, once you reach that age, you're unable to have children. It's done. It's over. There is no hope in that season. So what I love about Advent, what's the ultimate hope in Advent? It's Christ, obviously. God could have just sent us Jesus. He could have done that. He could have just sent him. He didn't have to use people. He didn't have to tell these stories. But instead, he went on this crazy, like, like spree of like blessing these people, these individual people. Blesses Zechariah and Elizabeth with a child. He blesses Mary, who is an incredible testimony in Scripture, like incredible testimony. We're going to talk about her the next two weeks. But then last week, or the, in, the, in the very last week of this series, we're going to talk about... Um, Oh, man, I already said his name. What's his name? I forgot it already. I don't remember. Shoot. Anna and his dude. Simeon. Yes, thank you. Simeon. This guy who God had told, he's like, before you die, you're going to get to see 
the Messiah. And then he's this old man walking into the temple and he sees Jesus. He's like, that's the Messiah. He got to see that. This is grace. This is hope that God gives in, in this Advent season of, of sending Jesus that wasn't necessarily like, required of him. Like He didn't have to do these things. He didn't have to bless these people, but he did anyway. He was going to bless this couple who had endured a life of pain and suffering. He's going to bless them with hope just because he wanted to, because he could. There was, all, there was one person that could do this. One other person that could end their suffering. It was only God. We like to think that there are other things that can provide with this hope in our lives, but it is not the case. We need that hope. The hope that keeps us moving when we don't feel like moving anymore. Like it's bigger. <laughs> it's bigger than just escaping whatever season you're in right now. Escaping whatever pain you're in right now. Whatever pain you've experienced in the past is bigger than that. Zechariah, the funny thing is, he wasn't even there to pray for a son. And it says that God, whenever the angel says uh, <clears throat> that he has heard his prayer. Now there's some debate to this, so I can't necessarily say 100% he wasn't praying for a son. But he was there praying, most scholars agree, that he was there praying for Israel. Praying for God to send the Messiah. He was sitting there praying for this, this 400 year period of silence to end. And the answer to that prayer was John, because what was John going to do? What does is, what is John the Baptist do in this story? He does baptize people. What's he do in relation to Jesus? He prepares the way. John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. He is the last person to announce that Jesus is coming. To announce that the Messiah is coming. So the answer to Zechariah's prayer, this is what's awesome about this story. The answer to Zechariah's prayer is you're going to have a child, yes, but also this prayer for Israel you're praying, your son is going to deliver that. Your son's going to be the one that, that introduces that, that prophesies this over the people, that, that brings Jesus, that shows the people who Jesus is. You think it's a coincidence that God would choose these specific people. It was not a coincidence. The Lord does not forsake his people. For years and years, Zechariah and Elizabeth, I'm sure they felt like they were praying to the ceiling. Uh, uh, what is it? Shadow boxing with themselves, trying to figure out why God was not showing up, why they were not hearing from him. Israel, why Israel wasn't hearing from them, but why they weren't, why they weren't personally, why they were faithful. They were probably seeing all these people around and they were not faithful, having kids, living these awesome lives, wondering why is this not happening for us? God did not forsake them. He did not leave them. He had been there to pray for Israel, and God killed two birds with one stone. Ends his silence by speaking to Zechariah. He's going to end his silence by speaking through John the Baptist, his son, ushering in the Messiah. So we shouldn't let people convince us that God only cares about the church like as a whole, like God's people as a whole. God cares intimately for the individuals within the church, for us, for you, for me. It shows us that we don't serve a far-off God that doesn't care about us deeply and intimately. The years that they spent crying out to the Lord, and in this sudden moment, the Lord's like, I was never, like, I was always there. <laughs> Heard every single one of those prayers. And in that, we're given an opportunity to exercise our faith in that. So look at verse 17. Verse 17, 
or verse 18, sorry. Verse 18, it says, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife was advanced in years. This is where we get to sort of the application here. God gives us this hope that only he can give, but it's up to us to live in faith on that hope. That's the hard part. So these people waited decades for this moment. But at the same time, whenever God promised it to them, whenever God showed up and said, hey, hey you're going to have a son, like it was like five months later that it was evident that that was right. Okay? That's not a whole lot of time to wait. That's, that's kind of a short period of time. The question is whenever the, when the, that waiting period is longer. So imagine this situation. Zachariah is in this profoundly difficult situation, but he wasn't really living in that because, like I said earlier, for some time now, he had known that like, their day was done. Like, they weren't going to have kids. Like, it was kinda, they had kind of resigned to that. The ship had sailed. So it was hopeless at this point. He wasn't considering it anymore. Now imagine an angel floats in and speaks to you. So not like, don't think of this as like, was it Evan Almighty? Whenever, who's, who's God? Denzel Washington? Right? Morgan Freeman. Sorry. Morgan Freeman. This is not what I'm talking about. This isn't like Morgan Freeman, who's like vaguely glowing and looks like maybe an angelic figure, but maybe he's just like in the wrong lighting. Like, that's not what I mean. Like, when an angel shows up, you know an angel shows up. You know it's an angel. I think of, of, I think it was Mark and John and Peter whenever they're taken up to the mountain of transfiguration and they see part of God's glory whenever Jesus sort of, uh, he, the transfiguration is whenever he revealed just part of his like entire glory to them. And like in that moment, there was no question of like, oh my gosh, that might be God. Like they knew 100% in that moment. They like saw it. Whenever an angel appears to you, you will know an angel appears to you. That's why all these other stories about angels appearing to them are, usually, are fraudulent. So I'm like, no, man, it's not that vague. It's not that, no, it's, you will know 100%. Like, you'll be knocked over by an angel appearing to you. So this is a literal angel appearing to Zechariah. angel tells Zechariah he's going to have a child. And what is his response? What's his response? No way. I don't, listen, I don't like getting it. I don't, I don't like acting like I would behave any differently in these situations. But of all the situations that I feel like maybe I would was when like a literal angel appeared to me. Like there isn't, it isn't like this, well, I kind of feel like God's leading me to this, but I don't want to get my hopes up. That's not what we're talking about here. This was Gabriel. Gabriel's like the angel of all angels. Like Gabriel shows up and tells you you're going to have a kid. You're probably going to have a kid. Like it's safe to assume that. So we should take away from this response, first off, is that human doubt has no end. There is no point that you'll reach in your life where you will not doubt God. That's not going to happen. Like I said, we all like to think we would have been faithful. We would have been faithfully following Jesus without doubting that we wouldn't have sunk like Peter did in the water. That we wouldn't have asked for our brother to come with us like Moses did because he didn't think he could speak in, to the Pharaoh in Egypt. We feel like we wouldn't be that person if we were around him for real. Like we actually saw God, if we were actually with Jesus, we wouldn't be that person. Human doubt is constant, no matter how evident God is. It's a literal angel. And Zachariah's doubt still says, no, nah, it's not possible. How possible is it that an angel is in front of you? Human doubt has no bounds, has no end. Zechariah, this faithful priest, he doubted. Peter doubted. Moses doubted. Abraham doubted. Humans always doubt. 
But we doubt about small or far smaller things. So my senior year of high school, the Sunday before baseball tryouts, I was a nervous wreck. There was a 0% chance I was going to get cut. 0% chance. And I was like, so, I was so nervous. I, I remember my mom like prayed for me and stuff. I was like, oh my gosh, why am I so nervous? Like, I'm obviously going to make the team. Like, you know, I wasn't going to get cut. There wasn't like some sudden roster like shrinking that made me like nervous. I was just like nervous. I was doubting that. Such a small thing. Such a small thing. Ryan Heffernan's high school baseball career is such a small, minute detail in the history of the world. And I was doubting even in that moment. To hold on to the sort of hope that God gives us, we have to have faith that God is good, that he is going to come through. That doesn't mean he's going to come through in the situation exactly like you think he should or like you want him to. But he will come through, always. He's always faithful. He will never forsake his people. Zechariah waited, waited, and waited for a promise just like this. But when he finally came, he didn't believe. It's crazy. Finally came and he didn't believe. This is the wonderful thing about this story and about God and his promises and his hope. Despite that unbelief, God did it anyway. God did not look upon Zechariah and say, or Gabriel did not say, you know what? No, I'm not going to give you a kid now. You didn't believe it. I'm going to go find someone else who, has a, who, who is stricken with this problem, see if they believe, and I'm going to give them a kid. The angel silences Zechariah, makes him mute for his unbelief, but God was working even in his unbelief. That's the difference between hope provided by everything else and hope provided by God. Hope provided by God. This God-only hope is not dependent on us. It's not reliant on us. Can we impact how it plays out in our lives? Absolutely. We will face consequences for this stuff. Like Zachariah, I'm sure he didn't enjoy being a mute for several weeks. Or think about David with Bathsheba. He faced consequences for that, for his sin with Bathsheba. Abraham faced consequences for, for having Ishmael with Hagar. Major consequences. There are consequences in Scripture, of course. We can impact the way that, the way that our lives are shaped and the way that we submit to God, obviously. Whenever God says something, it's etched in stone. That's what's, that's what's awesome about Advent, is that regardless of what we are doing, regardless of our inability, our inaction, our unbelief, our doubt, our lack of faith, that Christ's coming to earth was everything. Like it, it covered all of that. Like I don't think we understand that at this point in history, whenever Christ is not even on earth yet, whenever he has not been incarnated yet, like Christ had at that moment already paid for the sin of every single Christian. Like he knew your sin that you committed already, that you were going to commit tonight, that you're going to commit tomorrow and the next day, and for all of eternity. He knew that before this moment, said, I don't care. I'm going to die for him anyway. I'm going to send God the Father, said, I'm going to send my son anyway. Our lack of faith, our doubt, our unbelief does not stop the Lord. And in this Advent season, that's ultimately the character arc that we get to see in this story. This John the Baptist, the guy that was conceived in this story, the guy that's going to come out of this story in this miracle-like fashion, he was coming to announce this hope to hopeless, unbelieving people. That's what I love so much about this season. I love contemplating the fact, and we shouldn't, this shouldn't just be something that we do during Christmas or during Easter, Right? It shouldn't just be that, but we, we should take the opportunity to, whenever we are reminded of it to be joyful and remember that 
the creator of the universe had such an intentional plan for us, for humanity, since the beginning of time. He knew that his people were going to rebel against him. He knew that his people would reject Christ. He knew that Christians would sin again and again and again, yet he doesn't hold that rebellion against us. And he orchestrated this advent of Christ before any of that happened, before any of that sin, before any of the rebellion that he knew was going to happen. He orchestrated this event in which Christ comes down to earth, dies on a cross, and we get to reap the benefit of that. It's incredible. But I also love contemplating that the same God who had this massive plan for all of humanity, for, for the entire universe, also cares uniquely for me. Like me as an individual, like cares for you. Not just the group. Whenever I lack hope, he gives me hope. Whenever you lack hope, he gives you hope. Not just like come to church, experience it as a group. Not that, that's not what I'm talking about. You as an individual. He was thinking about you. That's what we see here in this story. The big picture is obvious. Like, it's weird going through Advent because it's like, okay, we all know. Like, John the Baptist comes, he announces that Jesus is going to be born. He doesn't announce that Jesus is going to be born. He announces that Jesus is the Messiah, right? That Christ ultimately is going to be born to a virgin, and then he's going to be presented in the temple. He's going to make these, these priests look like fools in the temple when he's like 10 years old. Then he's going to start this ministry. He's going to down the cross. We all know this stuff. We all understand this stuff. But I like that in spite of the big picture, we, like we know the big picture, we get to see that he cared deeply for Zachariah and Elizabeth. These two people. As humans, we so often respond to this incredible grace just as Zachariah responded to it. With doubt, we respond with doubt. We might respond with lack of gratitude. This is something that's important for us to know. Because, listen, the classic application of this is we all respond just like Zechariah. We doubt. You shouldn't doubt. Now, that is true. We shouldn't doubt. We should try not to doubt. But we should also know is that it's okay that we doubt. <laughs> That's not something he's holding over our heads. It's not like God didn't know before he created everything, before he sent Jesus, that we were going to doubt him. It's not like that threw him for a loop. Do you think God knew whenever God sent, when he sent Gabriel to Zechariah, he knew that Zechariah was going to respond the exact way that Zechariah responded? We aren't different than these people in Scripture. God knows that we doubt just like he knew that they doubt, but his grace is sufficient in our doubt. The hope that he provides is sufficient. So tonight, the question is, again, where is our hope at? So we get in this season, I think it's funny, when Christmas comes, it's all... It's all very joyful. It's all very happy. We hear words like hope and joy, peace, all this stuff. But like nothing makes December any different than November, or October, or September. Like people don't come into December with less weight or baggage because we have garland on the wall. Like nothing like changes. We're the same people. So whenever I say like where's our hope, I don't mean I don't mean like uh, go home and listen to Christmas music on the way home and feel a bit better about yourself. The hope that's talked about here is a real thing. This isn't just a for fun Christmas, oh, let's all feel better. That's not, this is a real thing. There's hope to be had, and where is, where are we placing our hope? What the story of Advent shows us is that there is a bigger hope that is true that's not going to let us down. 
But what this story shows us specifically is that God shows up with that hope in the mundane moments of life. He didn't show up in this crazy, huge way. He showed up to Zachariah and Elizabeth. So if I could have Will come up, and if you'd all stand with me. I want to come back to the question from earlier that I asked. The question being, what goal or desire, if unreached, would make you seriously consider or desire turning away from God? I want you to actually think about that. Be honest with yourself. Now, you can be honest with yourself and also acknowledge that, hey, that, that thing might make me desire that, but I wouldn't turn away from it. Like, there's stuff in my heart that I think that would make me question God, make me maybe desire to turn from it, but I know I'm not going to. Like, I know that's not, so we can be honest with ourselves here. Think about that. Like, what is that one thing? Whatever that thing is, that's your master. That's who rules you. That's what your hope is in. And you already know what I'm about to say. That is not, the hope is not sufficient. They're going to find in that thing. It isn't good enough. Here's the thing, too. The thing, that, that thing you might have thought of, it might not be a bad thing. It wasn't bad that Zachariah and Elizabeth desired to have children. But what separates them from the people around them, from a lot of the people that we might, from us, from people we might interact with, is that they didn't find their ultimate hope in that thing. They were still faithful, even whenever God said no to them. So often, that thing, even if it's a good thing, so often God will keep it from us if it is blinding us from God but has been put ahead of him. Psalm 42, I think it sums up the feelings that they were experiencing. He's, he's, in Psalm 42, David says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. Hope in God. So we're going to open up altars tonight. Remember David said, Hope in God. He isn't, he isn't telling the reader to hope in God. He is telling himself, Hope in God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? He knew intellectually in his head. He knew that God's hope was better, that it was sufficient for him. So if you're feeling hopeless, if you're feeling impatient tonight, we're not giving you a chance to respond, to pray. So again, I don't I hope this is the next three weeks of this isn't just I mean, we're not just showing up to like again to like having garland on the wall. I feel like we kind of like patronize Christ with Christmas of like that's a nice sweet time. Christmas brings out hard truths in life. Christmas gives us, this Advent season shows us what true hope actually is and exposes us to whenever we are not hoping in those things, in the right things. So if you're hopeless, if you're feeling impatient, don't, don't feel like, I can't, it's Christmas. I can't feel that right now. Come and pray. If you aren't a Christian, you might be wondering how to escape from that hopelessness because nothing else has done it. I'm going to tell you right now, nothing is going to do it. Not one thing that you're finally gonna find. So you're like, that's it. I found it. I found the one thing that's gonna end this. It's not. It's only Christ. So tonight, if you're not a Christian, follow Jesus, repent, surrender to him. If you are a Christian, like I said, altars are open. Repent, pray with each other. Let's worship.